Don't know if you're familiar with the expression, and it's been whispered in my ears a lot um, from being a young man up until recently. It's because I love you. Have you heard that expression? It's because I love you. And when I, when I received it, it was never in, done in praise. That's not, it was not never done in praise. It was mostly done at a point of discipline. It's because I love you. Often to the rhythm of a smack, it would be like this. It's because I love you that I am doing this. Did you ever have that? Maybe it's, it's, This is okay, because I know we don't smack anymore, but these were different times. It's because I love you. And I remember as my bum was scalded thinking, Mum, I'm sure there is another way that you could demonstrate your love for me than just by scalding me in this fashion. And I guess our children would say, how can it be that we can be disciplined in this way? How can it be that the same person who enforces broccoli eating on me is the same person who lets me off from smashing 10 glass plates, who just mercifully forgives me? How, how do these worlds come together? And sometimes I catch my children looking up at me and almost saying, do you, do you know what you're doing? Have you thought this through? Are you the same person? who cuddles me off to sleep, who shows me mercy. I think this is part, of, it's part of the journey of growing up, isn't it? If our parents are doing it right, that we come to a point in our lives when we appreciate that holistic love is not just pandering to our needs. It's merciful, but it is also authoritative. It also demands obedience. So our parents will say, or this could be our motto, I love you, so I'm willing to discipline you. I'm willing to set boundaries. I'm willing to set boundaries and to stick to them. I'm willing to enforce a pattern of behavior, not because I'm sadistic and the TV's boring me right now and I just want to see what I can get off on. Because I love you, I will set boundaries. And because I love you, that same person that sets those boundaries and acts with discipline in that way is also merciful And And these two avenues are not separate. These are key indicators of what love is. I think a lot of people in the world, when we think about what it means to be a child of God, would say that a God who acts to discipline, a God for whom there is absolute consequence, can't exist. That's too much for a lot of people. A lot of people would really struggle with a God like that. A lot of people can't believe that the same God that is merciful is the same God that disciplines in the same way that I looked up into my mother's eyes and wondered what on earth she was doing as she scolded me that time and I tried to figure out if this was the same person that had nursed me through. In that same way, God is both merciful and requires obedience of us. We're going to look at two stories. I don't know if we could pop the text up on the screen that... And one of the things we've noticed about Luke and as he writes is that nothing is coincidental. He's not just diarizing. He's not just putting stuff down chronologically. He's thinking everything through and he's wanting to get our minds engaged with the text. There are two stories here in which we see the mercy of God evidenced in Jesus Christ. This compassion as he weeps for a nation that has rejected him. That's a concept that we're just going to think about. Jesus is definitely rejected in this last week of his ministry. And yet he remains compassionate and merciful. And then the very next story, whilst he's merciful, he demands obedience. 
So these two twins, if you like, these polarized perspectives on God's love actually are not separate. This is evidence of God's love. And I think Luke would show us that in order to get to understand God and to have some grasp of his love, then this is something we need to deal with, wrestle with. God wants to discipline us, not because he's sadistic. That's not the kind of God he is, but because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. So we're going to read through a little bit of that text again. And I don't know how well you can remember where we were at last week, the triumphal entry, Jesus coming up the hill into Jerusalem. Remember what we said about how many people that the Roman census suggested might be there, something like two and a half million. This was, this was a carnival like no other. This is, and, and as Jesus is coming up the hill, the people shout Hosanna and welcome him as king. This is a celebration, and yet we're going to read and look out for it of Jesus weeping. Let's read it through again together. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And then listen to this. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. I want you to think about what this might mean. What's Jesus getting at here? The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will leave not one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. As the city comes into view, Jesus weeps for the city. I want us just to pause and think about these tears. Tears like this is incredible timing. That's awesome. I I couldn't have orchestrated that any better. Tears. Tears like that. And let's hold this idea of tears in our heads for a second. We often feel the need, don't we? With tears, because they're not always logical, we feel this need to explain our tears. Have you ever had that? Um, This... this, I've experienced this quite a few times. Since I've had the kids, I've become much more emotional. I cry, and it's awkward, and it's very annoying, but I cry much more often. But what happens when you cry? There's not always that logical pattern, and sometimes there's this need for us, isn't there, to explain the tears. So you'll be watching a soppy film, and you'll come away, and you'll say, oh, it's just because it's, just because it's so sad, and I didn't realize that he loved him. And, you, and you're crying, and you do this ridiculous thing where you explain why you're crying, because... Tears aren't always logical. Most bodily functions follow a logical pattern, generally speaking. Kira said to me the other day, I figured out, Dad, why, and maybe I shouldn't be sharing this with a whole group, but I'm going to anyway. I figured out, Dad, a formula. Listen to this. I drink fast, so I wee fast, with all seriousness. And I eat slow, so I, and I said, Kira, stop right there. We don't need to go any further. So all bodily functions, and she'd figured this out, I don't think a biological sense is quite adult, but she's, this, is, this was her theory, and I thought it's interesting that she's come to this theory. Normally, body, body functions follow a logical pattern, but with tears, tears, if you, if you ever cry with somebody, if you shit, or if somebody cries on your shoulder, you are getting to know them in such an intimate way because it's, it's illogical. It's, it's unique to them. We all cry for different reasons. And as Jesus cries here, I want us to think about these tears. He doesn't just cry, he weeps. And we, I think when I read the word weep, I'm thinking, 
That's not as much of a cry. In my head, I read the word weep and I think crying, as we heard before, is way worse than weeping. But in, in, if we look into the origins of the word, this word for weeping, what Jesus is doing here, this is a breakdown. This is not man tears that sneak out the side of our eyes that we can brush away and wish weren't there. This is, this is Jesus on his way up the hill to Jerusalem, seeing the city, God's city, and just collapsing. Just weeping. Now, the question, because we ask, because we're inquisitive when people cry, and we wonder what's going on, is why is Jesus crying? He's just been crowned or welcomed as king. Why then should he cry? Not for his own death, not for his own circumstances, because he sees that the people, and this is crucial, I want us to grasp hold of this, he sees that the people have missed their chance for salvation. He sees that the people of Jerusalem have had God come to them and they have missed him. They have not seen him. I'd like to just read an extract. Um, I did a bit of historical digging and I, and I want you to just to gaze up at that text and understand the depth of Jesus' prophecy about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. It's from Josephus. It's written in AD 70. Josephus, an eyewitness. See if you notice any similarities between what I'm going to read here and what's upon the text. General Titus also at the same time gave his soldiers leave to set the suburbs on fire and ordered that they should bring timber together and raise banks against the city. And when he had parted his army into three parts in order to set about those works, he placed those that shot darts and archers in the midst of the banks that were raising, before whom he had placed the engines that threw javelins and darts and stones, that he might prevent the enemy from sallying out upon their works and might hinder those that were upon the wall from being able to obstruct them. So the trees were cut down immediately and the suburbs left naked. But now, while the timber was carrying to raise the banks and the whole army was earnestly engaged in their works, finally the Romans were able to surround the city completely. So all hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews together with their liberty of going out of that city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devoured the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying by famine. And the, and the lanes of the city were full of the dead and bodies of the aged. Now the Jews at first gave orders that the dead should not be buried out of the public treasury as not enduring the stench of their dead bodies. But afterwards, when they could not do that, they had to cast them down from the walls into the valleys beneath while the holy house was on fire. Everything was plundered that came to hand, and 10,000 of those that were caught were slain. Nor was there a commiseration of any age or reverence of any gravity, but children, old men, and profane persons and priests were all slain in the same manner, so that this war went round all sorts of men and brought them to destruction. And as well and as, well as those made supplication for their lives, as those that defended themselves, by fighting. It's quite a long-winded quote. Maybe he nodded off halfway through it. But what Josephus viewed was the complete desolation of Jerusalem. Josephus observed what Jesus was saying. So we can understand, in a sense, why Jesus wept. Lots of logical reasons Jesus would have cried. His disciples didn't really get what he was doing. The people rejected him. He was, he was wandering up the hill towards his own death. This was his his physical end in that sense, and yet that is not why he was crying. He was weeping because of the response of the people. The people had had God 
right in front of them in God's own city, this city that God had established, this city that was promised to Abraham, that was established by David, that was made beautiful by Solomon, that was preserved by the prophets, that Nehemiah rebuilt, that was set apart and provided for by God. Zion, this city where the people would come to see God, a light on a hill that people might come to know him, that they would see his justice and see his ways. And the people within this city had God walk up to their city in the form of Jesus Christ and they missed him. That is why Jesus wept. John puts it like this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And what does Jesus do? What would any of us do if we knew the the misfortune that was coming to this place, we'd be wanting to say, well, I told you so. You had me here, and you rejected me. But what does Jesus do? There is ultimate consequence. But Jesus doesn't say, I told you so. Jesus isn't happy with what's happening. Even though it's at personal cost to him, Jesus weeps for these people. It's a great glimpse of our God, isn't it? The fact that right throughout Jesus' life, there was this pattern of rejection of men. And yet Jesus gets to the point where he knows their end game. He doesn't mock them. He doesn't stand afar off happy with their judgment. He weeps for their circumstance. He sees the decision that they're making. He sees the future in front of them. And he weeps for them. Something of God's love. It just got me thinking. I guess as God can see the future ahead of us, the plans that we make. And I guess, I guess if I'm being honest, I thought about my own life and I thought about the stacks of times when I had God's way really clearly in front of me and I rejected God's way and I chose my own way and then I took a step forward again and I had God's way again and I took my own way and, and over, over time and time and time again I moved further and further away from God and I rejected him and yet... God didn't look at me and say, well, Gibson, you made your own bed. You've made your mistakes. I'm glad to see the back of you. I'm glad you walked away. What does this weeping tell us about our God? God looks at people who openly rejected him, who would hang him on a cross, and he weeps for their future. Let's remember this about our God. Let's know this about our God, even when we ignore him. This is the God of the Bible. He doesn't stand aloof to us. He's desperate that we should get it right. One of my favorite pictures in the Bible comes in the parable of the lost son. I don't know if you're familiar with the parable of the lost son. It's a great great picture. And in, in the story, the son grabs his inheritance early and goes off to a far country and fills his fills himself with the food and enjoys himself. What do we know of the father that represents God? The father doesn't just go, Well, be gone with you. I'm glad I'm glad I'm glad you've gone. You know, I hope you die. That's not the picture of the father. In that parable, we read that the father stands scanning the horizons, desperate for the son to come back. That is the God of the Bible. He doesn't, he doesn't look at us and wish us ill as we choose our own way. He weeps for us, and he has mercy for us that we would come back. And I guess one of the, one of the, things I've got to make clear if I'm responsible for God's word in in this instance is that 
What's happening here is that Jesus is being rejected. I feel like I need to be really clear on that. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and the people are choosing to reject him. And I thought, that's, this is an odd story. I look back through the book of Luke, and I look back through Jesus in the Bible, and I thought, this is it's an odd story. Why do we have this progression of stories? Jesus is He's rejected, and then you read through some of the prophecy about him in Isaiah, and you read that he's going to suffer, that he's going to be marred more than any man, that he's going to live a life, a pattern of suffering. This is, this, is what is, this is what is in store for him. And as you read through the book of Luke, every time we come to a new story, we read that he is, he's rejected again. The people come there, he has to leave the city, he's rejected. And as we come to this last couple of weeks of his life, he will be rejected and as I, as I read through the book, I thought, why does, Luke, why does Luke have to make this so clear? This is our hero. And time and time again, we read of his rejection. We read of, and, we, and I guess if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, you, you'll read it in the next couple of chapters, how ultimately Jesus will be, you know, he will be abused. He will be tortured. He will be whipped. He will be left and abandoned completely on his own. Why, does, why could Luke not spare us some of this detail? Why is this all in there? The other week, Leave that question in your mind. The other week I watched a film called The Railway Man. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up. I've got a bad track record of recommending films. It's gone, it's gone very poorly for me. Whenever I've recommended a film, there's always been something bad or grotesque in it or something like that. But this film, I put my neck on the line and say, go and watch The Railway Man. It's a brilliant film. Part of the story covers this guy called Eric Lomax. He's captured by the Japanese and he's sent, he's, he's sent as a prisoner of war to help build the Thai-Burma Railway. Maybe, maybe now as I, t- as I describe this story, some of these circumstances will become more familiar to you. And I guess what, what, what they did, the Japanese, was they, they kind of grabbed an army to build this railway that was pretty much unbuildable. And they treated them not great, not really great. But this one guy in particular, Eric Lomax, who was a railway enthusiast and a bit of a geeky engineer, built a radio he built a radio to, to entertain the troops, but the Japanese were really scared of this and thought, this guy's a spy, and he's gonna, he's, this is a transmitter. It's not a radio, it's a transmitter. So they tortured him. And this was one of those films that was on... Do you ever watch a film where you're kind of like, I'm not really watching this? Do you ever watch a film like that, where you just put the film on, you sort of sit back, and then you realize after half an hour, you're still saying, ah, I'm not really watching it. And Jude, Jude kept coming in. Jude doesn't really like torturous, scary films. She doesn't. And I was really wanting her to share this moment with me. I'm like, no, this is a really good film. You should come and watch this, this film. And I kept thinking to myself, I wish they would stop showing these horrific torture scenes. I don't know why they have to keep showing these horrific torture scenes. The way that the film played out, it was, it was flitted between his present life and his old life on the concentration camp. And in his present life, he was suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder and he would wake up in the night and he would be screaming. It was torturous. And then you'd see him as a younger man and he was, he was being waterboarded. I think that's the right expression. And it was gruesome. And I was watching it thinking, I wish they wouldn't keep showing these torturous scenes. Then my wife might come in and watch the rest of this film with me. But it was really important that they did. You see, it was crucial to the narrative. It was crucial to the plot that we got a sense of just how sick and depraved human beings could be. Because the point of the film was forgiveness. Eric Lomax goes back. He feels like he needs to conquer something. He goes back to Burma and he bumps into one of the people who tortured him. And not immediately, but over the course of a few years, he finds in his heart 
to fully forgive this man. And it's a true story, and they go on to become great friends. But it's only in coming to appreciate the full depravity of man that we get a sense of the grace and the mercy of Eric Lomax that he showed to this God. In the same way, when we flick through our Bibles, when we see the way that that God's people would reject Jesus, when we see the way that they would pierce his side, that they would spit at him, that they would reject him completely, it's only in grasping some of that that we see the amazing forgiveness that our God offers us, the incredible depths. I guess as well as we read through that and we see what mankind can do to mankind, we get a sense of our own fallenness. But at the same time, we get a real sense of his mercy and his incredible love for us. So God is merciful. But remember at the start, we talked about how that God's love and the perfect love of a parent isn't just merciful. It also comes with discipline too. And we find that Jesus moves into the temple, verse 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. What happens here in the Passover week of Jesus' life, I guess we have this Sunday school image of Jesus being the good guy who helps everybody out, and that is a little bit shattered when we get to the last couple of chapters of the Gospels. Because when we read about Jesus driving people out from a marketplace, it's just not the Jesus that we expect, is it? And if we read, it's odd actually, because you'd expect that Luke, Luke in his Gospel normally writes more story than anybody else. But to appreciate this in, in another level, you could read it in John's Gospel, where we read that Jesus kind of makes a whip and scares the people out of the temple courts. And you think, is that, is that Jesus? Is that my Savior acting in this way to bring discipline? Is that the same guy that acts mercifully? Yes, it is. Let's think about why, just for a second. What should the temple be? Jesus is God. What is he expecting to find when he walks into the temple? Everything about the temple is geared up towards people meeting God. This is God's dwelling place. The whole design of the building is that people would come and meet God. So the rituals that are involved are done so that God remains holy and that people can come to grasp something of his holiness. It's where, I guess, the temple in Jerusalem under the old covenant is where the whole world will get to see God. Now in this quote that's in the passage here, the full quote you can find in Isaiah 56, 7, Mark also gives us it. We read in Luke that it says, my house will be a house of prayer. But in some of the other Gospels, it says, my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. What Jesus is saying about his house here is that this is where everybody will come to get a sense of God. God's perfect justice. God's perfect ways. And Jesus walks into the temple in the middle of Passover feast when it's going nuts and it's crazy. And he sees people fleecing people. He probably observes a Gentile coming in And just not getting anywhere near to the mindset of praying because there's people trading and doing business. So if you read read a little bit of the history of this, there's Ananus, which is easy for you to say, was the former chief priest. And according to Josephus, he was just known for extortion. 
So this week comes along where Passover comes. There's millions of pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem. People are seeking opportunity to make money. So apparently the birds that you could buy and other things that you could buy for sacrifice actually ended up costing 80-90% more than what they would ordinarily cost. It's a complete rip-off. It's a complete scam. It's like when we go to the services and they charge us £1.50 for a can of Coke. And when you're from Yorkshire like me, you can barely breathe for five minutes for thinking about it. It's just the same as that. Jesus walks into the temple courts and what should be God's holiness, what should be an opportunity for people to meet God, has become a raconteur. It's become people fleecing people. It's become a complete sham. And his heart breaks And he loves the people with discipline. It's a really helpful picture. It's an old picture, but when you think about it, the fact that God is hidden by the hypocrisy of religion from everybody else, you think that's an old picture, don't you? But that is such a helpful picture for us today when we think about that. The truth about God. To the Gentiles in the temple, the truth about God was hidden because people were trying to make money. Think about our church. Think about our circumstances today. The truth about God hidden because of the hypocrisy of religion. What would Jesus do, I wonder, if he walked into the houses of parliament today? What would he do if he walked into the Church of England today? And I guess so this is about us. And I guess as Matt introduced at the start, what would he do if he got hold of us today, where would he start? The first place Jesus goes, as he enters Jerusalem, proclaiming himself king, he goes straight to the temple. He goes straight for the hypocrisy because he sees that nobody is going to see God while there is hypocrisy in his temple. Nobody's going to get to know God while this hypocrisy covers him. Jesus goes straight to the heart of the problem. I guess we would often think, what's the next step for my Christian life? Why am I getting hold back? I think that the first place Jesus starts with us, starts with me, starts with you, is with the things in our lives that are hypocritical because people can't see God. It's the biggest critique we could have of ourselves as Christians, isn't it? The hypocrisy that lingers in our faith that stops people from seeing God. Just as a little sidebar, and just to be a little bit mischievous with my congregation as well, what does it mean that we have to do to other people that people might see God. There's a lot of hypocrisy in this world. I just wonder sometimes what Jesus would do with the hypocrisy that's knocking about out there. What would he say? What would his actions be? Would he be as passive as we can be as Christians? Or would he be more involved socially? I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit. Just to summarize then and to wrap up, we have a God that we know that we can fall on who is merciful, greatly merciful, who, who looks out for us, who is desperate that we should get it right, who weeps over us when we make wrong decisions. But to know the fullness of God, God's love, we also have a God who demands obedience. Not because he's sadistic, that's not God, but because he loves us. We have a God who wants us to change, to become more like him. To know the fullness of God as we are his children is to know both the God who shows mercy and the God who commands obedience.